thank you, Tim, for having me, for all that you're doing, even though the microphone doesn't work. <laughs> you sure you can hear me back there? Because if I don't, I need to speak up. Okay. Anyway, that's it. Okay, it's to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. Um, the um, the, the um, papers, the materials that you've got tonight are the materials for the next couple of weeks. We'll be doing Merchant of Venice for the next couple of weeks. We didn't get the books on times. We've got, um, we didn't get the book on time. We've got about 30 copies here. Tim asked that, um, that I give out the the first that we have to those people who signed up first. Um, I just had eye operation and I can't, I'm half blind. Can you call the names off? While my wife's doing this, can you just call them off? Ashley Pierce? Here, just come up and pick up, or raise your hand if you want, but we'll pass the books along or something. Um, and Joanne Stankers? Just pass it across tables if you guys would mind. Um, I think the books are $5. Billy so and Edgar Marshall. Before you leave tonight, if you could all give Tim $5. I think they're $5. Oh, okay. In that case, they're $10. <laughs> leave the money with me. Robert and Karen Hodgson. Um, Robert and Karen Hodgson. A couple of technical things at St. Francis. Um, they have a, a setup where Father Flynn's homily used to be recorded and put online. Julian Russo. So you can go online, or you were when he was there, you could go online and hear his homilies, and they made a place for this course. So you could go online at St. Francis and to a, to, on the website it was watch and listen. I think they've changed it. But you get the whole audios of everything we've already done already because we've done it there. My hope, I'm going to talk, I'm going to be, I would, by the way, I would appreciate your um, support here. Lean on Father and get audio in, in uh, here at Elizabeth and Seton so that, that there's, we can get this on audio because I know it makes a difference when people um, when it's available, very often people go online and listen to tapes again. And very often when you miss um, a week or something, you have to go away, you can pick it up again. So Celeste Zapata? I'm going to be... Um, can, we go, can we go on their website? Sure you can. I mean, it's, it's free. So um, the, so the talks are never the same, even though I'm giving the same material. They never turn out to be the same. Doc, over here is one. Um, so I hope we can get this on audio. Um, I, um, I, I hope it comes, but if it doesn't, uh, you can go to the St. Francis website and um, which St. Francis, sir? Which St. Francis? St. Francis in Grapevine. Grapevine. Thank you, Patricia Edmondson. Um, one one note of encouragement to everybody here. Um, I know you all wouldn't be here. Mary Melodo Shree. Let me read them off. Doctor. It's, 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 it's the last one. Okay. Cindy, yes. 
Cindy Fraley. Who would like books? Can you? Are you? Which, what's your name? John. John, thank you. Anybody who would like a book tonight, John? We've got 20 books in there for people who would like to get a copy tonight. I would okay. get one too. Just hand them out. One last thing. This is very important, and I'd, I'd like everybody to underline this. Thank you. Thank you. Shylock, we don't know the story of it, that's okay. Oh, I don't think I have any. It's what is it? Somebody else needs it. Yeah, I'm going to get him by next week. Can I have your attention? So we paid Tim for this $5? Uh, we're going to order more copies. And, oh, we paid you? Um, I'm going to try to rush order them it's five and have them sent here during the week. I don't know. So hopefully, if any of you are doing mass in the mornings or maybe even by next weekend before our next class, that one you pay us. we'll have enough copies for everybody there. Okay? Um, yeah. You can, these are very expensive copies. These are five dollar copies. You, you can six. buy copies. Six. Six. six, six, You can buy. You only. Um, you can buy copies um, for fifteen, you know, twenty dollars. Don't. Um, the the uh, when I talk about the play, I'll make references to page number, act and scenes. If we're doing a novel, it would matter because different editions would have different page numbers. It's not going to matter in Shakespeare. So if you want to get a Kindle or if you want to get another edition, do it. You know, the references are easy, so you'll have no trouble following. But we'll order copies, and hopefully they'll be here in the midweek. Um, what I'm going to do is try to delay, slow down this first couple of weeks anyway, particularly since you all don't have copies. Um, so don't, don't worry about it. I want, to, I want to say this as emphatically as I can as emphatically as I can. Um, when I started the class at St. Francis, I knew I was working with an older group of adults who were busy, grandparents, activities everywhere. Um, when kids go to school, they're required to be there every week. They have to be. If they're not, they're going to get failed. You guys, thankfully, aren't bound to that, so you could miss classes. Um, this is really important. My belief is that if you read the books, if you read the books, if you experience it, you're going to take that experience into you and it's going to be a part of who you are. That's not a small thing for me. You know that if you read Cliff Notes, or teachers who were foolish enough to give out study guides, um, <laughs> if you read study guides, you know that you're reading about something. It's about it. It's a different kind of knowledge. One of the things that literature does is take us back into our concrete world, exactly the way we experience it. One of the things I'm going to say tonight, I'll probably repeat it a couple of times, the, the peculiar knowledge of literature, poetry, is that it gives us a knowledge by experience. It's not ideas. We're not reading for ideas. 
Every other discipline deals with ideas. We're not. Literature returns us to the world. In my mind, it's like a grace because we can go back into the world and experience that as it is, except we see things because of the way the artist shapes it so we can see things differently. We learn to see things, we learn to feel things that very often we miss in our daily lives. Literature returns us to that world to have deeper sight, deeper feelings, because these, the great artists, the ones that we're reading, see so much more than we do. So it's really important to read these books. I said this to the, um, the group at St. Francis forever. It's like, it's the difference between a Catholic and Protestant world. In a Catholic world, you participate in God's divine life in the Eucharist. Yeah? This, you're not thinking about him. This is not in your head. You're not a Protestant reading scripture dealing with ideas. That's a fundamental difference. This is not about something. Yeah? Just like the Eucharist. Think of Eucharist, our faith is, by an act of faith, we enter into something divine. It makes us more human. I mean, the, the way God made us. So it's crucial to read these things. Here's my point, now that I've hit you over the head. Um, if you don't read them, I don't want you to miss class. Because you'll get a lot out of the class. I know you've got busy schedules. You've got kids and grandchildren and work. And so if you're not reading, I don't want you not to come. Because I, my experience is you'll get a lot out of class. Does this help? No. Just, I don't, I'm not used to this. What's your name? Maria. Maria, thank you. So, just know that, okay? Um, you, you obviously, you'll get a lot more out of it if you read the books because you, you'll participate. You'll enter into that life. Um, but if you don't, don't worry about it. Come anyway. Um, because if you stick with it, a whole tradition... Here's the claim I'm going to make. I don't know that I can do this very well. I use my hands too much. I've never done this. God. Um, there was a, um, one of the workers at St. Francis the other day told me that she lost her sister a couple of years ago. And it changed her life um, because it was the first major loss she'd experienced in her life. And, and I think in some sense it made her aware of maybe how self-centered she was in a way that she didn't realize. When she lost her sister, she realized how much she missed her and probably felt, you know, that she didn't do the things she did. I mean, so many of us feel that when, when someone we love dies. Um, and she said, it made me a better person and it made me more able to relate to other people. Their sorrows, their wounds, their... I mean, suffering teaches us a lot. So my belief is that if we participate in these books... Um, we will carry more within us as human beings. The more we do that, the more we carry within us, I think the more, the closer we get to Christ. Because when he took on our nature, he took on the fullness of our nature. Everybody. It wasn't just for the well-educated, or the rich, or the pious, or those without sin. It came for everybody. Poor, rich, sinners. And he said that over and over again. So... The more we enter into this work, these works, because they're by gifted, gifted poets, the more we take into ourselves. 
The more fully we can do that, the more fully we can enter into our lives with each other. That's one of my assumptions about the work. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. So, okay? So I think that's it. I can't go around holding this thing up. That's it. You, you all can hear me, yeah? yeah? Good. What have I forgotten? Too much. Too much for Getting too old for this. Um, okay. Here's or, so here's ordinarily what we do. Um, at St. Francis, this is what I, we do. I'd like to do it here. <laughs> I'm going to have to make some changes here. We start with a prayer. And we start with, after the prayer, we, we, I do a reading of a lyric poem. And my reason for doing the lyric is that I don't want people to lose the musical aspect of literature. Because up until the modern world, if you didn't know that, all literature was musical. The, Hom the Homeric epics, Virgil, Dante, were all set to a certain rhyme. The assumption behind that narrative, it was a narrative, it was telling a story. But the assumption behind that form was that ultimately it was musical. What was implied behind it was this order and harmony to God's world. So the poetry, even though it was telling the, the Iliad, even though it was telling a story about a war, people, every page gives us a description of somebody being killed, eyes popping out of the head, a spear going through somebody's entrails. You know, blood dripping off the chariots. I'm going to love doing that work, in case you didn't know. <laughs> so, it's a violent work. I mean, it's, it's war. God's present everywhere in it. But, but it's put to music. One of the reasons I want to do the lyric is because the lyric is the closest thing to music that we have. And I want you to experience that. So, we do a prayer, we do a lyric, and then we do whatever works we're doing. Most of the works are epics, not uh, narratives. And I'll get to that in a second. That's what we do. Um, I asked for prayer requests then. Um, it was an amazing change for our group because once we did that, I, I realized how, um, how much was going on in people's lives and they were able to share that with each other. You know, it becomes a part of your life. You know what's going on. There's too many of you to do that. So what I'm going to do, because I do not want to lose that. I do want to lose that. Um, what I'm going to do is divide the group into threes. A to HG, I, I don't know, whatever. We have, I can't remember now. The middle group and then to R to Z, Z, whatever it is. And ask for prayers and rotate through. Because I don't want to lose prayers. Um, but I want everybody to understand, with this exception, if anything's going on in anybody's life, so that you're not in a group that, say, we're doing from A to H next week or when we start prayers. Um, if you're not in that alphabetic group, but something's really important in your life, I don't want you to hesitate. I just like to 
you to enter in. But I'd like to alternate through. If I open up the prayers every class, we don't have a class. <laughs> and there's just there's too, too many here, so. But I don't want to. I don't want to lose the prayers. So we'll open up the prayer. We'll do a lyric, and then we'll start on whatever work we're doing. Okay. That's basically it. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by you guys. Just to say the least. I'm saying this genuinely. I hope I get to meet all of you. Particularly, you know, I mean, it's not as easy to see people in the back, but I honestly hope to get to meet you. Okay. Um, I think that's it. You know, the books are coming. We'll have when we hand out. Um, the handouts, the poems and things, I'll ask for donations to cover cost of printing. You could chip in every once in a while and be grateful. If I'm giving you a study guide, I'm going to ask you to pay a little bit more because it's a copyright. Uh, but I think that's it. Okay? Um, I'm so overwhelmed by this that I, like, I can't collect my mind right now. Um, let's say a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life in you, the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, and your words to us daily, and for all the ways in which you are present with us through the day, all of us. Um, even if we don't see you, we're always here. I hope this class helps all of us to feel that uh, in our bones. I ask a blessing what we're doing. Um, bless this group, all of us. Um, I ask for a, um, an increased spirit of openness in all of us, to, um, that all of us open ourselves to what these poets have to offer us, um, to take it in, to live it, and not just to be smart, not just to be smart, to show that we know, to live it. That's a burden. For us to pick up what we're learning from these people and make it real in our own lives will ask a lot of us. Strengthen us to do that. Um, help us all to be strengthened in our faith, um, to take courage, um, particularly in what we learn from these people, um, and let it be a help um, in our efforts to take you to our world, particularly where you're not known. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, I just had eye surgery, so pardon me for this at all. I haven't figured out how to do it yet. Okay, take, oh, home. Okay, take, I think it's on the back of the Gerard Manny Hopkins window. Um, you should have several lyrics. Gerard Manny Hopkins is one of them. I gave you a couple of songs, mm -hmm. because songs are lyrics. And let me, I, I forgot to say this, I, I don't want to miss this, I should have this dialogue. Um, I think most of you are going to look at me as a university professor, that's the way the, the flyer advertised me. And some of you may feel like you're in over your heads, you know, you're going to be reading Shakespeare or Homer or um, Dante. Um, 
I, I have never felt like I fit in with my profession as a doctor of literature. I, I'm very skeptical of most professionals. If you put a doctor in front of it, it's going to make me back off a little bit because I'm very guarded in my professionals. Um, I hope you won't feel that way. I mean, I'm going to present some things that I think are probably not going to be easy. I mean, if you're going to be reading Neely, you're going to be reading a book that's not easy. But if you stay with it, you're going to find that these poets are telling us stories about people just like ourselves. Just people like us. Um, some are not educated, some are maybe dumb. You know? um, just because a person's not educated doesn't mean he can't be virtuous, he or she. Um, St. Thomas said that a peasant woman uh, uh, who lived her faith was probably a more complete human being than an educated person you know, who didn't have it. That's how important faith is. I hope you won't feel that way. I'm going to do everything I can to relate these works to us. We're, I, I take that as... Um, we're most extraordinary when we can accept our ordinary humanness. Um, if that isn't... I can't believe you all don't feel that. Christ took on our human nature. That's how glorious it is. There's a lot in the modern world that demeans our nature. As a matter of fact, we're going to encounter each of us. I'm going to read some passages tonight. And the passages that I read are going to show you that's the nature of our regime, America. At its base, it's demeaning of the human body. I'll make that clear. Anyway, I just I don't want anybody to be put off by this literature, you know. Um, we're, we're here together to grow closer to Christ. Um, to learn what these poets have to say to us about God working in the world. So be patient if you ever feel that way. Okay, um, okay. first poem, Supernatural Love. It's on the, it's on the back side of that, Gerard Manning Hopkins. Now, so you know, um, I, I try to make it a rule not to talk about the lyrics. My wife is laughing. Ask me not to talk about the literature. Uh, I do everything I can to just make the lyric stand on its own because that's not our focus. I'm reading the lyric because I want people to experience this music and this wisdom that poets have. So I keep my comments to a minimum, okay? But I'm going to come back and reread some of these poems again and again because I know that when you reread it the second time, it's not going to mean what it did the first or the third. But in every one of these poems, the lyric poems that I've chosen, the poet is showing Christ or God in the world in some ways that we don't see. Okay? That's the purpose of this class. So the reason for choosing this poem tonight is because I think it's one of those perfect illustrations of what I'm talking about and what we're going to do together, okay? And I'll, I'll just say a few things now and then I'm going to read it. And I may read it again, just to let it sink in. But anyway, when I'm reading it, this poem's about, um, it's told from the point of view of a woman who's older, looking back on her life when she was a four-year-old child. Her father is a scholar, he's an intellect, Okay? And like most intellectuals, he's in his head. She has a fascination for carnations, and the father can't fathom it. He can't understand why she has this obsession with carnation flowers. 
So the woman telling the story is going back to that event when she was four years old, and it's about her father's curiosity, why she's so taken with carnations. He goes to the oh God. He goes to the dictionary. As if the meaning of things can be found in a dictionary. I hope we all know that it's helpful, but ultimately dictionary can't help us a lot. It can help because we enter into experience through everything, not just a definition. He goes to the dictionary to look up carnation. And in the in the dictionary definition, it goes to a French word too. Okay, and I'm not going to go into that, but just be aware of that. Um, now remember, um, be, be mindful, because when she's describing what happened, she pricks herself. She's doing one of those um, template things where you stitch um, a word or a flower or something, and what she's um, stitching is beloved. Okay? Now, just to start, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word beloved? St. John. Paul's letters. How many times have you been to church and beloved? Brothers and sisters, beloved, yeah? So there it is. She's stitching beloved. She's four years old. Does she have any notion about it? Yes, absolutely not. Okay? She loves carnations. She stitches the word beloved. She, she pricks herself. Blood starts coming out. In the, in the description in the poem, we, we learn that the scissors speak, the needle speaks, a nail has pricked her. When she describes the hallway in her house, she describes it in terms of tombs. Okay? And at the end, when she pricks herself, she goes, Daddy, Daddy, what's that? What is it? Christ on the cross? Okay? So, I shouldn't have said all of that. I should have just let the poem alone. But it, it's a way of saying, when I read it, just be aware. Okay? But it's interesting that a modern poet is doing that because so few poets do today. Okay? Gertrude Schneckenberg, Supernatural Love. <clears throat> My father, the dictionary stand, touches the page to fully understand the lamplit answer. Tilting in his hand, his slowly scanning, magnifying lens, a blurry, glistening circle. He suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant, plucked, infinitesimal string. The obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. So he's going to the dictionary, okay? This, this is the scholar. 
I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye. There it is, needle's eye. Um, it's through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed with the study's gloom where as a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there. He bends to pour over the Latin blossom, I'm four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch beloved X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way thread behind my sampler does, where following each X I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love he reads, the pink variety of the clothes. Carnaccio, the Latin meaning flesh, as if the buzz essential oil brushed Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret, bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors, triumphs me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud, clove, a spice dried from a flower bud. Then twice as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, fresh a nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved, but my needle caught within the threads my blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand. It is myself I've sewn. The flesh laid bare, threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before where incarnations bloom that roots the boar, the flower I call Christ. Lines four. Sorry. What are this four? Sorry. I can never read that poem. Finish it forever. Um, Stop thinking about this for a second. It's a poem about nothing. Yeah? Little girl pricking her finger. How is that not ordinary? It's a little girl pricking. Nothing happens in this poem. Yes? The poet who wrote this poem makes it clear that in the nothing that's happening, this little girl pricks her finger and her dad's going to the dictionary so he can find the meaning of what's going on. Does he get the meaning right in front of him? He's a scholar. Probably not. This poem's about nothing, and yet this poet sees that everything in this poem is taking this child to the cross. If this poem's about anything, it's part of participation in the crucifixion of Christ. It's another thing. How often do we miss these things in our lives? That's the point of this class. Um, that right in front of us, is our God ever not with us? No, absolutely not. Do we see him all the time? I think I'd say, I'd say I'd speak for myself, no, you know, but... 
Anyway, that's what we're going to be doing, okay? Let me read it again and see if I can hold it. Hold it. It's up together. Um, that's the quote, okay? So let me read it again. What I'd like to do, too, by the way, because I'm going to, um, if all of you would get a folder to keep the lyrics together so when you come, you can um, produce a stack, keep a stack of your own poems so you can go back and read them. I would encourage you to do this. I've said this forever. Poems are meant to be read. This is not a small thing for me. We live in a Gnostic world. Look on the TV and we've got an image. There's no body there. Pick up a phone, we've got no body. The body is absent from our world. What did Christ take on when he came into this world? A body. We are Gnostic Catholics. In every day in ways I don't believe we realize. Take these poems home and read them. But when you read them, do not leave them alone in your head. Because in your head, they're unincarnated. They're thought without a body. These poems were meant to be read because they're musical. They were meant to be heard. So take them home and read them to each other. Read them aloud. Hear them. Because when you give, uh, um, when you read them aloud, you give thought a body. It takes on a body. You'll hear it differently. So bring a folder and, and keep the, phone, the poems collected because we'll come back to them periodically. And, and, and I hope you'll enjoy them when you take them home. Okay, I'm going to try this once more and then start. Oh. Now you have a sense of... Remember, there's nothing going on here. The little girl stitching a sampler, pricks herself and her dad goes to the dictionary. What could be more ordinary than that? Supernatural love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the left-hand answer tilting in his hand, his slowly scanning magnifying lens. A blurry, glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant, plucked, infinitesimal string, the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. That's so interesting. That's his abstraction. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens ground for a butterfly peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed of his study's gloom or as a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there. He bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pens and needles on the floor trying to stitch beloved expanse. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages, the way the thread behind my sampler does, or following each X. I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love, he reads. A pink variety of clothes. Carnatio, the Latin meaning flesh. Incarnation, to in flesh. That's what God did, in flesh. As if the bud's essential oil brushed Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron fresh odor carnations half floats up to me, 
a drifted secret bitter ecstasy. The stem squeak in my scissors, child, it's me. He turns the page to clothe and reads aloud the clothe, a spice dried from a frown blood, bud. And twice as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clue, meaning nail. How is that for Larry? He gazes motionless. Meaning the nail, the incarnation blossoms, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved, but my needle caught within the threads, like blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone, I lift my hand. It is myself I've sown. The flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony, call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnations bloomed from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ's when I was free. That's our start. Okay, can you all pull out your timeline, please? so bad. Um, here's the claim I'm making. The very greatest literature is prophetic. The very greatest poets. Take out that time, um, can you? Look on the first page where it says timeline for epics in scripture. <clears throat> we know, we believe, that God speaks directly to prophets, that there's a prophetic tradition, that Christ completes it. Yeah, he brings that prophetic tradition to completion. We also believe that each one of us is baptized to be priests, prophets, kings. Every one of us is supposed to be prophetic. I don't know how seriously we take that, but that's our call. We're supposed to be prophetic. By prophecy here, I don't mean seeing the future, you know, looking into a ball the way some people claim they do. By prophetic, I mean um, showing us things about ourselves that very often we don't want to see. That's what the prophets in the Old Testament did, but it's important to recognize they were showing things beneath the surface. Yeah? I mean, it would have been easy for Jewish believers to follow God and still not worship Him the way they should have. The prophets kept scolding them. That's why they were sent away and, um, and persecuted. So by prophecy, by prophecy, I mean showing us things about ourselves that ordinarily we don't want to see. They, they take us into depths. They show us the depths about ourselves. And sometimes those depths can be painful. Freud claimed to do that in psychology. I happen to think Freud was too narrow in his approaches. What he did was open up what we could call the um, somatic or the material or the physical unconscious. Freud had no clue, not a clue, about the spiritual unconscious. 
That's a place he couldn't go. My claim is that all of these poets, poets take us to those depths. They help us to see things about ourselves and our world. And the great ones um, take us closer to God in the way that they do that. So, um, so I'm, I'm lining up two traditions. One is the prophetic tradition, as we know. You can see it there on the page. Abraham's called out. Um, important, you're going to see the importance of this in a minute, I think, in an amazing way. He's called out to do something for God. He's asked to leave his family, his background behind, and to do something for God. It eventually leads to the 12 tribes and to Christ and the disciples ultimately our church. But the prophets were um, delivering to us words spoken directly to them by God. Okay? What I'm claiming is on the other side, in a natural order, not the supernatural, in a natural order, there are poets um, who, who draw on their suffering largely to help us see the disorders in ourselves, but they bring it, those, some understanding of those disorders with something that's like a grace. It's called poetry. Beauty, the order of it. You know, we can read a tragedy like Hamlet, the dark tragedy, or Macbeth. Pick the tragedy, it doesn't matter. But Sophocles, when Oedipus takes out his eyes. We can read a tragedy about a, a horrifying experience and still feel a gift. That's what St. Augustine said. He loved the Greek tragedies, loved them. Um, he said, it, <laughs> the strange paradox is that he loved these stories about suffering because they were so real, but the poets managed to do that in a way that created a pleasure in him. You know, that we learn to see something with this order and beauty at the same time. Um, so what I'm claiming is that on the natural side, there is this tradition of great literature, the very greatest, not all literature, not all poets can do this, but the very greatest poets um, put us in touch with something divine. So they're helping us from the natural order to help complete what God is doing in the supernatural with his prophets, okay? Now, interesting, take a look at this. Abraham's called out about 18, 19th century B.C. Moses enters the promised land, and Moses, the prophet, called out for a founding. A founding, right? He's going to go into the promised He's going to take his people into the promised land. A, a new people, a new way will be established. It will lead to the covenants, all the covenants, um, 12 tribes. What's interesting is that almost simultaneously with that time, the Trojan War takes place. Now, the Trojan War takes place in about 1300. It was a real war. Homer doesn't write until around the 9th century, sometime. He's writing a poem about an event that took place 400 years before he lived. And it's the great, one of the greatest poems we have in all of history. And, more importantly, it's a founding work. The Iliad is the founding work of poetry, and in some ways, the founding work of civilization. Now, here's what's interesting. What's Genesis about? A founding. Abraham, I mean, it's the exile from the garden, and Exodus is the struggle to get to the promised land. What's going on in literature in the very greatest works lines up with that because every great work of 
literature in the beginning, every great epic was about the founding. Every one of them. Every one of them. What's the Iliad about? There's this great war between East and West, still going on today. That has not changed. It, it will not. Um, this war between East and West, um, and something happens involving an individual who's forced to come out of that world because of what he does, a new order begins. Okay, every epic is about the refounding of a people. I'm giving a definition, this is crucial. Every epic. Every epic deals with the disorders of a people. Those disorders get so bad that a hero is called out. It's very often a divinely ordered task. He's called out by the gods to do something. And because of what he does, a people takes on a new identity of itself. It learns to see something it didn't see before. So whatever the disorder was, that put it at odds with the divine order, with the gods, like the Iliad or the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Whatever the disorder it was, something happens to bring about a new order, a new identity for a people. America is that kind of, that's our world. New order of the ages, our, when we broke off with our declaration, you know, our wars. So every epic is about a family. And it's amazing to watch the two traditions develop because they line up um, in amazing ways. And you can see that here. I won't go into this right now, but the Iliad is about a war between um, East and West. Achilles is the hero, and it begins with a priest wanting to bring a ransom to get his daughter back because she was taken as a slave in the war. And the king refuses. Agamemnon refuses. And, and Achilles goes to him and says, give the woman back. Give her back. He won't do it. And the king um, takes Achilles' prize. He dishonors him. Achilles withdraws from the war, and when he does, the, the Greeks almost collapse. Um, in the middle of that war, because the Greeks are being devastated, the king will send a, this embassy to Achilles to get him back in the war. He's going to offer him nothing but booty. The great irony of that book, the Iliad, is that it's all about booty. That what determines a man's worth is booty, possessions. Is anything different today? I'm asking, I'm saying it seriously. To me, one of the greatest critiques of America is the Iliad, written 2,000 years ago. What's at the heart of that book is that people, men, are killing each other over booty. Because they think that what determines a man's worth is his material possessions. What are they ranked? Horses, armor. What's at the highest point of that list of booty, of rewards? Women. Man who has the most beautiful woman. Who has the most beautiful woman in that story? Paris, because he has Helen. He took Helen, and that's what started that war. So we see a world in which men turn each other into objects, women as well. Until Achilles breaks from that, I'm not going to tell you what he does. You have to read it. Um, but it, 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 what it does is refound America. I mean, sorry, the West. It refounds the West because something's going to happen to radically change our view of, of man, of our human nature. That's the founding of our West. The Odyssey picks up where the Iliad leaves off. It's about a man trying to get home to his wife. It's about marriage. What happens in that work is a refounding of marriage. Because the, most of the marriages in that time are marriages of like, they're similar to the war in this respect. Men and women both, not just men, women too, treat men as objects. Men and women see each other as objects. 
What happens with Odysseus is going to radically change that. He's going to bring a view that changes the way men and women see each other. So in the Iliad, you've got human nature. In the Odyssey, you've got marriage. In the Aeneid, you've got a man after Troy destroyed. In the Iliad, Troy's destroyed. Aeneas picks up and he's told by the gods, go found this city. Go found this city. It's going to be Rome. He's going to try for eight years to keep founding a city, and every attempt is going to end up in a failure. This is the great hero. He does nothing but fail. Until he finally comes to Italy, he has to go through this war, and he will found Rome. Rome in that work is called the, time, the eternal universal city, because it's an image of a city unlike any that had existed up, up until that point in time. Because in Rome, every man will have a place. Whether he's poor or rich or wealthy or well-educated, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Rome is for everybody. If you look at those epics, you can see every one of those epics anticipating Christ. And interestingly, to, to put, this, put a mark on this, every one of those epics ends with what we know in our church as the uh, parousia. The return of the king. What did Tolkien do with his great trilogy? The return of the king. The Iliad, Achilles comes back, bringing judgment and power. Achilles, the return of the king. Odysseus comes home to a house in disarray. Suitors are tearing it apart. The return of the king. When Aeneas returns to Rome, he doesn't even, Italy, he doesn't even know it when he goes there, but he's returning to his ancestral home. It's where ages before his parents began. He's going back to beginnings. Return of the King. Every one of those epics anticipates Christ. How does that happen? Don't tell me it's coincidence. There's too many. So we're watching a tradition unfold that, in amazing ways, lines up with our own tradition. Okay, that's what we're going to do in, in the work that, that lies ahead of us. Um, um, so what I'd like to do after we start with Shakespeare is I want to go back to the Iliad and the Odyssey and pick up. We'll go from the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, we'll do those works together. Then we'll read a small work by a man named Boethius. You may not have heard of him. So, St. Augustine is known for City of God, the Confessions, On the Trinity. Those are his great works at the beginning of the Middle Ages. St. Thomas writes the Summa and... Uh, Summa Contra Gentiles, those are his great works. Between those two great men is this man, Boethius, a Catholic, who was involved in politics and wrongly accused or something, and he's taken to jail and he's going to be executed. And he writes this book called Consolation of Philosophy. It's a very short, very short book. What he's dealing with in that book is the Job question. Why does God allow evil to happen? Why does he allow bad things to happen to good men? And why does he allow evil men to prosper? That's the joke question. And I think it's the question for every Christian, because ultimately every Christian's got to go to a cross. I mean, we're either going to be victims or we go to a cross, because there's no way to escape suffering in this world. So it's a paradigm. It's, it's an amazing book. It begins with Boethius in, in jail, awaiting his execution. He's being unjustly executed. If there's a reason for whining, it would be then. I'm going to die and I haven't done anything wrong. The lady philosophy comes to him and says, stop your whining. Stop your whining. Stop crying for yourself. And um, <laughs> this is the funny part about it. 
It's a very short book, but it begins with her saying, you've lost your way in the world. The trouble with you is that you read too much poetry. <laughs> she said, you've got, to, you've got to recover yourself. So she goes back and deals with these questions. What are your beginnings and what are your ends? Who created you? Where did you come from? It goes back to the Job story. What he does is amazing. I don't want to give that book away. It's truly amazing. Everybody who reads that book that I've known and the work that we've done is just blown away by it. So we'll do Boethius, then we'll do Dante. And I think you all know a couple of years ago, um, Pope Francis asked our whole Catholic world to read the Commedia. It's an extraordinary book, and it actually fits with what shape we're going to start with tonight, with Shakespeare going there, um, with Shakespeare's Venice. Because um, what happens with Dante is remarkable, and you'll, I think you'll see the importance of it even more in a minute. Dante's writing at that moment when the first commercial republic of the modern kind in the West is founded. It's the first burger republic. It's unlike the republics of the ancient world. It's based on money and commerce. So Dante's work is prophetic in this way. In Florence, Dante, in the whole of the Commedia, if you read the Commedia, you know that in, um, there's almost not a canto you can read in which people are killing each other over political motives. They're either attached to the emperor or the pope, killing each other. And um, it's in the context of Florence and the fight between these factions. But what he's doing in that work is laying bare the commercial regime at its inception. That's the founding of America. The commercial, the Commedia is really a prophetic treatment of our world because we, we are the fruit, of, the result of what began then in the, in the Renaissance. We are a commercial republic. Shakespeare's gonna make that really clear. We'll get to it in a minute. So Dante's work is extremely prophetic. It's showing us ourselves. Um, so we'll go from Dante to Shakespeare, and then from Shakespeare, we'll do Hamlet, and, and the Winter's Tale I want to do with you, because I think the Winter's Tale is one of the most perfect expressions of art that I've ever read. It's the most perfect treatment of Christian forgiveness that I know. I can't watch the movie without breaking up. Um, it's an extraordinary story, Winter's Tale. Um, we'll go from there to Melville, Moby Dick. And just so you know, Moby Dick is not a story about a whale. It is, it is, obviously. Those of you. Melville's Moby Dick is, uh, I believe this to my roots, it's Melville's exorcism of Protestant demons. I know that might sound outlandish. If any of you know that story at all, you know that there's two aspects to it. One's tragic and one's comic. The Ahab story is tragic. The Ishmael is comic. Ishmael tells the story, so it finally becomes a comic work. But the, at the center of it is tragedy about this man, this Captain Ahab, who is cut apart because he's been raised to believe that he was predestined. It's from Calvin. That, that souls are predestined to damnation before they're even born. That's how great that work is. That dogma is being exercised in that work. Melville's putting it away. It's one of the most important critiques of America that we have today. If, if you read it, I mean, I, I, some of this I relate to you, but when we go, I hope we get there together. 
you'll see it's amazing. He, at the beginning of that story, he's dealing with all of these Protestants. And what you see is the Protestant world, think, think seriously about this, just looking ahead. The Protestant world did away with all the sacraments. They're gone. All the priestly orders, the sacraments are gone. Take away the sacraments and what does Christianity become? It becomes a moral code. That's what it becomes. And that's what Melville's going to lay bare before he goes out to sea. And when he goes out to sea, he's going to explore metaphysical depths of what's wrong in America. So it's an amazingly prophetic work, like some of the other works we're reading. Moby Dick. From there we're going to go to Faulkner. Faulkner wrote a book called uh, Go Down Moses. Listen to that. Go Down Moses. Right out of the Old Testament. Faulkner loved Moby Dick. He said it was his favorite work. He wished he'd written it. Um, now, hold on to this. Moby Dick is, is the Ishmael story. And you know from the Sarah Abraham story that Ishmael is the outcast one. Remember? Um, Sarah can't conceive and she has... Um, Isaac. Hagar. Hagar, um, yeah. Lie with her husband. Then she gets really angry. <laughs> um, the... the, the fruit of that maybe was Ishmael. The poem begin, the work begins, call me Ishmael. Obviously that's not his name. What Melville's dealing with is an outcast Christian nation. Call me Ishmael. That this Christian nation is failing in its Christianity. And the outcast one, Ishmael, is going to tell the story. What he's going to tell the story about is this tragic tale about Ahab and the terrible struggles this man has to take on. That's, that's the outcast one. Who's the subject of Faulkner's good on Moses? Isaac, the chosen one. So Faulkner, who's our contemporary, close to us, is picking up with what Melville did to tell us the other story. And interestingly, he's southern. It's the Isaac story. And from there, we'll go to T.S. Eliot and then see um, probably end with C.S. Lewis and Turiel Faces. That's the sort of project that I'm, if, if you all have the patience to stay with what we're doing. Okay? Any questions? Or I'd like to turn to um, the opening of um, Shakespeare just to, to get everybody involved in the text. But any questions about what we're doing? That makes sense. Sounds exciting. Well, it's great literature. It's great literature. Any questions? Um, you can pick up, um, you know, you can pick up the Shakespeare. We will order copies, so just be patient. And don't worry about getting behind. I'm not in any hurry. Tim may want to get rid of me sooner than I, but if he's, if you stay with us, um, say your name. Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Oh, I, I, I mean, we'll spend a couple of weeks, maybe two or three weeks. I, I, I don't want to take too long because I don't want to draw things out and I want to get you guys going. It's not a long play. It's, not a, it's just a short play. Um, but I, I know if you guys are out of practice and lots of you probably haven't read much literature in a long time, but just read it through. We'll spend a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, and we'll do the same. Oh, by, by the way, so... Merchant of Venice is Shakespeare's treatment, I'm going to claim, of America. It's Venice. It's the modern commercial republic. But what he's doing is showing 
as a modern, he's showing us what Dante did as a medieval. He's showing us ourselves. I think you'll be even surprised tonight. Shakespeare's going to lay bare some of the hidden things about our country that most of us aren't aware of that, um, that I think it's important for us to be aware of. So in Merchant of Venice, we're looking at the comic side of the, the commercial republic, us, we're a commercial republic, and in Othello, we're going to look at the tragic aspect. And hold on to this way, we're going to have um, there are no marriages in Venice. All marriages have to go elsewhere. In Othello, the only marriage of any significance ends up in a man killing his wife. You may not want to read Shakespeare, <laughs> but that's what we're going to look. That's what we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. We'll do the comic side of um, Venice and the tragic side. Okay. What's your name? Pam. Pam. Hi, Pam. Hi. So, over time, did you find these patterns over time from your teaching or from your experience of reading these things? Or how, because this is a different pattern than most. What you're used to seeing. Um, I think a, a lot of it has to be credit to the UD program. Where I, I took my graduate, I took my doctorate there, and then taught there for a number of years, because the people who founded it were aware of this and put it together. So if you're a student and you're a teacher, there's no way you cannot become aware of this tradition. But let me also add, a lot of teachers are not going to go where I went or I'm going. Um, there are a lot of teachers there who are who are not going to do this. They're just not going to see it. Um, at some point, you're either going to say to me, you're nuts, Dr. Alexander, it's not there, or you're going to say, holy cow. My own experience is that most teachers don't see this stuff. It's just, um, you know, they're reading for Freud or Marx or mm -hmm. um, what people are doing with literature. That's why it's so troubling to me. Um, I love literature. I love literature. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like what people are doing with it today. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry what's happening to our kids because of the way teachers are teaching and stuff. We're, we're losing, we're losing this great heritage, this great gift. We're losing our roots because of the way teachers are teaching this stuff. I, I don't want to, I don't want to lose them. Uh, there's, there's too much that's too great and ironically lines up with our own faith. Okay, let's let's start. Can you pull out our? And if you don't have a book, don't worry. Those of you who have a book, turn to the opening of the play. If you look at the board behind me, you'll see that I um, I put timeline, Plato's Cave, the three genres of Venice. It's later than I intended, so next week um, I want to go through Plato's Cave allegory because it's going to it's going to play out in every work we, we read, and I want to talk about the three genres. They're, the first principles of literature are genres. That's what makes literature what it is. The lyric, and we read that a while ago. The supernatural love is a lyric. Narrative and drama. Those are the three genres. In the lyric. The poet usually speaks in his own voice, 
And very often, it's a poet speaking to his beloved. Shakespeare, John Donne, doesn't matter. The poet is speaking in his own voice, so he is one with the poem. In narrative, the poet is speaking about somebody else, Achilles, Odysseus, um, Anthony, um, Shylock, Huckleberry Finn, um, you can you know, pick out a narrative. Somebody's telling a story about somebody else. In drama, the poet steps out of the picture. He's nowhere around. And, he, and, the, and the, the story unfolds on its own. Those are the three genres. I happen to believe, and I'll go into this later, that the origins of those three genres, lyric, narrative, and drama, are the three persons of the Trinity. It's too heavy to go in tonight, but I wanna, at some point I'm, I'm going to hit you guys over the head with that. Um, you might not want to come that night. But those are the three genres. Every evening when we meet, we're going to read a lyric. Just, but the greater amount of our work will be in narrative, the epic, the the Odyssey, It just happens that we're starting Shakespeare because I wanted to start with us today, with our world. Venice, the commercial republic, because I wanted you to see some things about our world. Okay. So next week I'll go. I'll, 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 I'll give you Plato's Cave. It, it'll just take a few minutes to do, but I don't want to do it tonight. I want to. I want to get into the text just so you can have some sense of what Shakespeare's doing here. Okay. So take a look at um, the opening scene. Those of you who have it, and those of you who don't, just follow along if you can. Act one, scene one. You gotta get closer to the mic. Mm -hmm. Say that. Get closer to the mic. Yeah. Let me just, in a, in a, uh, just very briefly give you the summary of the story. You've got the study guide, so you can go through and have a help. Basically, the story is this. That it begins with this man, a merchant of Venice, a man called Antonio, who's met by his friends, and Antonio seems sad. And his friends, being friends, offer what they think are explanations for his sadness. And with each other, um, explanation that they offer, Antonio says, no, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. Bassanio, who's a dear friend, comes to Antonio and asks for money because he wants to woo a woman named Portia. So there are two settings in the story, Venice, which is the commercial republic, and Belmont. And Belmont is Belmont, beautiful mountain. It's this place where Portia was raised. What we learn when we get to her is that her father died, but he put her under an injunction. For her to marry, she has to, she has to undergo an ordeal. You all know what an ordeal is in the middle, it's when knights joust, right? It's the ordeal, and a knight throws down his gauntlet and, and, and they have to fight. This is an ordeal, except it involves Portia. She has to submit to her father's will, and her father's will is that she marry the man who chooses the right casket. There's a gold and a silver and a leaden casket. And these men come, but they come and wrote. If they fail, they can't tell anybody what their choice was, and they can't marry. So it's an ordeal for them. So 
Shakespeare's showing us that marriage has hidden beneath us this all these deep implications for the choices that people make because they're going to be tough. So her father's asked her to do something and she's going to do it. She's an obedient daughter, but it's not going to be easy for her. So these three men come to do this ordeal. Bassanio, at the beginning of the play, goes to Antonio and asks for money so that he can finance this trip to go to Belmont so he can present himself as a suitor. And I'm not going to tell you what happens. But that's what's going to, what Shakespeare's going to do is show us the nature of the commercial republic, our, our rule. Okay? So let me, let me just read to get us into the play, but basically that's half the plot. So it begins, Antonio said, and by the way, for those of you who've read Shakespeare, the, in, as a rule, I'm not, and I'm not kidding about this, Shakespeare's, every play that he wrote has its meaning embedded in the opening lines of every play. Every, Hamlet, who's there? Hamlet, who's there? The whole play is, who's there? Who are we? A ghost comes to him, but who is he? Um, who's the king? Who's this other man? There, no, nobody knows anybody else in that play. It's just full of complexities and mysteries. It opens with that question, who's there? That's an absolutely modern question. Who are you? And, and this is during the Reformation, or just shortly after the Reformation, when all of these new theologies came out that absolutely divided people, gave them different beliefs. Who are you? What do you believe? You know, what's real? So every Shakespeare play is given away in the opening lines. Just know that. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing fact. He's such a great artist. It begins with Antonio saying this. In sooth I know not why I'm sad, so sad. It wearies me, you say it wearies you. But how I caught it, found it, or came by it. What stuff is made of, where it's born, I am to learn. And such a want-wit sadness makes of me that I have much to do to know myself. Solario, your mind is tossing on the ocean, there where your argosies with um, portly sail, like seniors and rich burghers on the flood, or as it were the pageants of the sea, do overpeer the petty traffickers that curtsy to them, do them reverence as they fly by them with their own rings. Your mind is, the reason you're sad is because all of your adventures are at sea. Remember, this is the commercial republic. What defines the commercial republic is a break from the Holy Roman Empire, a break from the feudal system, every man now can be responsible for himself. That's the nature of the commercial republic. It encourages each man to be resourceful, to be an entrepreneur. That's the nature of the commercial regime. It rests on contracts. You set up a contract, you make this investment, and you try to be resourceful, and you may gain, become wealthy if you do. That's our, that's our world. So here at the opening, it begins with Antonio saying, I'm sad. And his first friend says, of course you are, because all of your adventures are at sea. If I were you, I, I'd be worried too. Does that sound like a businessman? How many businessmen yeah. go to sleep with any ease tonight? <laughs> Solano, believe me, sir, if I had such ventures for it, the better part of my affections would be with my hopes abroad. I should be still plucking the grass to know where sits the wind. You pick it up to see What's the wind doing with my ships at sea now? Remember, Venice is a port city. It's a commercial city, so it's trading all the world. And, and it's one of those wealthy cities during the Renaissance because of its commercial character. 
Peering in maps for courts and piers and roads and every object that might make me fear misfortune to my wishes out of doubt would make me sad. My wind cooling my broth would blow me to an ague. I'd get sick when I thought what harm a wind too great might do at sea. I should not see a sandy hourglass run, you know, with the, with the sand running through it. But I should think of shallows and of flats because just the association of sand running through an hourglass would remind him of the sand at sea and his ship, you know, beaching. And see my wealthy Andrew dock its sand, it, sorry, its sand, I think, veiling her high top tower lower than her ribs to kiss her burial. Should I go to church and see the holy edifice of stone and not be thinking straight of dangerous rocks? Walks into church and he sees an altar made of stone. Where does his mind go? Ship. Antonio, believe me, no. I think my fortune for it. My ventures are not in one bottom trusted. I, I ventured, what do they call it? Not putting all my eggs in one basket. He's very adventurous, so that's not what's making him sad. So, Larry, what then? Antonio, fine, fine. Solanio gives another answer, and then suddenly um, Bassanio, his good friend, comes up, and Antonio says, as his two friends depart, Solanio says, I would have stayed till I had made you marry if worthier friends had not prevented me. Antonio, your worth is very dear in my regard. I take it your own business calls on you, and you embrace the occasion to depart. So as soon as the friends come up, and Solerio says the courteous thing. Um, I would stay longer, but better friends would come now to take up the time. You go ahead and visit with them. I'm going to go off. And, and Antonio says, I take it your own business calls on you and you embrace the occasion to depart. Solerio, good morrow, my good lords, Bassanio comes up. Good seniors both, when shall we laugh? Say when you grow exceeding strange. I don't see you much these days. Must it be so? You'll make it our business to attend the nearest. Bailey. It's at this point Bassanio is going to ask Antonio for money. And Antonio being a dear friend will give it to him. Now let me just stop for a minute. What's wrong in these opening scenes? What's wrong with this? And why is Antonio sad? I, I, this may be new for any of you. Don't, don't be, there are, there are no bad answers. I mean, we just, um, you know, don't be shy. Any sense? What's your name? Larry. Larry. Um, he's, Concerned because of his business ventures are not in his control, and and he is anxious about the business ventures, the ships or whatever he's got, and he wants dearly to see that come to a success, but it's outside of his control, and and he's, that's his main first concern. His other concern is that he doesn't like being concerned. He wished that he were happier. Uh, and not being so involved in other yeah. things yeah. that it doesn't give him peace. Yeah. Any thoughts on his friends, Solario and Solano? They're like good friends. I mean, they come to, we do this all the time, they come up to a friend and he's sad and they offer these answers. Any thoughts on those two friends? Job. Hmm? Job. Job's friends? Yep. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, that in the in the book of Job, Job's all confused and anxious, and his friends try to talk him out of it, or at least try to comfort him, or even accuse him. I'd say more accused than comfort. But yeah. What's your name? Yes. Teresa. 
Oh, okay. Really? Yes. Yeah, thanks. Anybody else? What strikes me about this opening, and I, I, I think it's close, I think it's closer than the, to the second thing. It's Larry, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if you listen to his friends, and you, I mean, you've not read this before, I've read it kind of many times. Um, if you listen to his friends, you're watching friends try to be friends without realizing how glib they are. This man is sad, and it's not because of his ventures. I think, I think he's reached a point where, as a matter of fact, you, you can't, you know, when you read this, if you read it a couple of times, you see. What's wrong with Venice is that nobody has time for friendship. His friends take, use the occasion as an excuse to get away. What's on their mind? Business. Every, everything that goes on in this points to people are too busy. And when they give reasons for his sadness, what they show is how preoccupied with money they are. They're both glib. One of them says, if, if my ships were at sea, I'd be sorry too. It's so clear that Antonio is sad, I think because of some existential sort of problem, that there's something lacking in the commercial regime, and in the opening, it's a lack of friendship. Solera says, if, if my ships were at sea, I'd be sad too. And then the other one says, if I were in church and I looked at the um, altar stone, my thoughts would immediately go to the stones on the, on the sea that your ship's... Where should his mind be in church? Yeah. Yeah, Seriously. Yeah. You look at the altar, what do you... You're supposed to be concerned about contingent things and your business matters? It's precisely there where you're supposed to let go of them. Something's wrong in Venice. Business is such a preoccupation. Making money is such a preoccupation that it's keeping people apart. Friendships are suffering. These, and these people use the, escape, the, the excuse because Bassani arrives to, and they're very courteous. We would stay except we leave you in better company. It's obvious they're going off, and we're going to see that again and again in the play. So the first thing that we see about the commercial regime is that people are so preoccupied with business, with money, because this is the nature of the commercial regime, that friendships are suffering. And the opening character, the merchant, who's gonna, whose life is going to be at risk later on in the play, is Sam. And his friends are offering a reason, and they don't even see how far they're missing, because there's something deeper going on. The play is going to open that up. Okay. Now, Pisanio comes and says he wants to meet this woman. He's barred. I, I don't have time to read this right now because I want to, I want to call this too close shortly. He says that in the course of their friendship together, he's borrowed money from Antonio before, and every time he's done it, he's wasted it. What are you doing? I'm sure none of you parents have had this experience where you've given money to your kids and, and knew that it was well spent. He's borrowed money from Antonio before, and, his, and he's wasted it. He's too cavalier, too loose, takes it for granted. And he says, when I was younger, I, I learned that if I lost an arrow, that I, shot, I would shot, shoot another one in the same direction and hope that I would get it. And even though you've given me money before and lost it, I'm trusting you to do the same again, to shoot that arrow, to trust me. He wants to woo this woman, believing that if he does, it'll make him happy. That's where the play is going. Now turn to the next. 
Act 1, scene... Act 1, scene 2 takes us to Portia, and it's there that we learn how sad she is. Now, think about this. The play opens in Venice with Antonio, who's the merchant. That's what the play's about, the person it's about. And in Belmont, the first person we meet is Portia, and she's sad. Both of them are laughing something. And she's talking to Nerissa, her maidservant, and telling her she's, a, she's struggling with the, um, what her father asked of her, that she undergo this ordeal for marriage. And what's crucial, I just want to point this out, in Act 1, Scene 2, she says, um, you would be sweet, madam, if your miseries were at the same abundance as your good fortune. You shouldn't be complaining. You, you, you are wealthy and comfortable. What are you crying about still? Um, you would be sweet, madam, if your miseries were in the same abundance as your good fortunes are. And yet, for aught I see, they are as sick as serpent with too much as they are starved with nothing. It's no mean happiness, therefore, to be seated in the mean. Superfluity comes sooner by white hairs, but competency lives longer. What she's doing in that opening passage is affirming Aristotle's notion of virtue. That all of us should be struggling between extremes. Whatever the situation is, we want to know the right thing to do, look at the two extremes. Um, your kid does something wrong, ignore it. Beat him. Um, to answer that, we've got to find a way of reconciling those two extremes that call for a virtue. That's always much harder. How do you call your children to task without beating them up or letting them go? To practice virtue requires an on, a vigilance, an ongoing effort. That's what the church calls us to. We're supposed to be practicing virtues. So it's clear from these opening scenes that Portia's father has raised her to be aware of the things, to love philosophy, to love art. That's, that's everything about her will show that. She's, good, she's, a, she's one of Shakespeare's most extraordinary heroes. You're gonna, you'll see that as you read. What she does is amazing in this play. But she loves virtue and she loves the mean. Here she's being called to this horrible task. She's got to give obedience to her father and he's asking this apparently awful thing. So we, we go to Belmont and we learn about Portia there. Now, here's where I want to go to, to end our class tonight. Act 1, scene 3, Bassanio goes to Shylock and asks for 3,000 ducats. 3,000 ducats, well, I for three months. Shylock says, oh, so you Christians come asking us Jews for money when you need money. When you don't need money, you spit on us, walk over us, preach us meanly, and now you want to be kind because you need money? And that's basically what's going on. Um, and Antonio, Bassanio, Shylock asks, what bond, what assurance will you offer for this loan? Antonio arrives and offers himself that he will stand as surety, as guarantee for the loan. Okay? Um, this is Act 1, Scene 3, about line 67. Shylock questions whether or not he should give money without usury, without interest. And he uses a passage from the Bible to justify what he does. When Jacob grazed his uncle Laban's sheep, as Jacob from our holy Abram was, as his wise mother wrought in his behalf, the third possessor, I, he was the third. Antonio, whatever, did he take interest? He has nothing but scorn for Shylock, and Shylock, as a Jew, has nothing for scorn. The two 
faith bodies at issue here, Christians and Jews. It's at the center of this play. Do not take interest directly, as you would say, direct interest. Mark what Jacob did. When Laban and himself were compromised that all the evenings which were sweet and kind should fall as Jacob's hire, used being rank in end of autumn, turned it to the rams. When the work of generation was between those holy breeders in the act, when it was time for the mating to take place, that skillful shepherd, skillful shepherd, um, Jacob, <laughs> I'm laughing at Father Friend right now because whenever we, I remember the readings we've had at St. when we were doing the Jacob thing and enjoying Father's response to Jacob and what he did here. The skillful shepherd peeled me certain wands and in the doing of the deed of kind, he stuck up between them a fulsome use. So in the act of conception, he stuck up this multicolored thing who then conceiving did in eating time fell party colored lambs and those were Jacob. That was his arrangement. So he gets all this all these lands because of his cutting. This was a way to thrive, and he was blessed, and thrift is blessing that men steal it not. This was a venture, sir, that Jacob served for, a thing not in his power to bring to pass, but swayed and fashioned by the hand of heaven. Shylock as a Jew says, no, it was his cunning that did it. Antonio as a Christian said, no, that was God's working in it. That's the result of God. So two radically different Ways of understanding the Bible are in conflict. Okay? Now, Shylock agrees to give the loan to Bassanio, but the bond of the loan is Antonio's pound of flesh. He says, What will you offer a surety? He offers his life, a pound of flesh. Um, Antonio, about line 125. I was like to call thee so again. To spit on me again, to spurn me too, if thou will lend this money, lend it not. If you're going to do it, do it. If not, forget it. As to thy friends, for when did friendship take a greed for barren metal of his friend? But lend it rather to thine enemy, when if he break me, as thou with better face to exact the penalty. Antonio has always given money without interest, as a free offering. Shylock has never given money without benefit. So Shylock tends to profit from people's suffering, from their neediness. He lends an interest. Why look how you storm, I would be friends with you and have your love. Forget the shame that you have stained me with. Supply your present wants and take no doubt of use of usance for my money and you'll not hear me. This is kind I offer. This were business, Bassanio says. Um, Child's going to walk away. Antonio, content. I'll seal to such a bond and say there is much kindness in the Jew. So, the arrangement, this is a contract. This is the nature of the commercial regime. Nobody will venture. Nobody will risk being an entrepreneur without a contract. That's the nature of the commercial regime. You make a contract with somebody, you make good on it. You make an investment, somebody has to stand behind it. The bond in this case now is a pound of flesh. So, on that understanding, Shylock's going to give Bassanio that money. Okay? Um, Antonio, why Bassanio says, you're not going to do this. You're not going to risk your life for me at this. I'm not going to let it happen. Antonio says, quiet, I'll do it. Why fear not, man, I will not forfeit it within these two months. That's a month before this bond expressed. I do return three times when I, so don't worry. My ventures are spread. Um, well within that time, I'll have a return. I'll be able to, how many times have we made an investment in something and something? We hear about it all the time. 
Foreclosure. Somebody gets fired, the job goes down. Suddenly we've got nothing. Shylock. Oh, Father Abram, what these Christians are, whose own heart dealings teaches them suspect the thoughts of others. Pray, tell me this. Listen to this. What should I gain by the exaction of his work picture? Let's say his ships don't come in and I call the dead in. What am I going to gain? Out of flesh. It's nothing. It's not so estimable, profitable neither as flesh of mutton's beef or goats. I say to buy his favor, I extend his friendship. If you take it, so if not, to do. What's the significance of those lines? Why are you worried? What, what's to gain a pound of flesh? What should I gain by the exact, if I get it? A pound of man's flesh taken from a man is not so estimable, profitable neither as flesh of mutton's beef or goats. I say by his favor, I'll end it otherwise. What do those lines make clear about the commercial issue? What determines the worth of any person in this regime? He's devaluing. Yeah, how marketable. Whether somebody will buy it. What does that do to our attitude towards the human body or the human person? Look at what's happening to the aged in our world today. Look at what's happening to the unborn. People who get in the way of our convenience. How do we look at our human nature in this regime? Because the overruling purpose of this regime is to make money even at the expense of other people. Yes? Is everybody following? Mm -hmm. So here's the issue. I'm not going to go past this because it's, it's time to stop, but here's the issue. So Shylock lends this money to Bassanio. Antonio is put up as, as, as the guarantee of the, the bond. And he does it confident that the two ships will come in. So there's no, except what's going to happen in this play is the ships are not going to come in. Shylock's going to take Antonio to court. He's going to take this man to court for the $3,000. Here's, here's, here's the conflict. This is where it's going. Two things really important here. There's two different ways of reading that are involved. One is an Old Testament according to the law. The other is a New Testament according to God's mercy and his faith. Yeah? Two different ways of reading law. Shylock's going to take Antonio to court, and his death, his life is forfeit. Shylock's going to say to the judge, I want my bond. The Christians are going to say, let it off. Now just for one minute before we stop. What happens if Shylock gets his way and the law is enforced? Antonio dies. Antonio dies. What happens if the Christians have their way and he's let off? Shylock makes no money, no, no, no reward. And not only that, um, if people are let off of their bonds, their contracts anymore, and you can't trust them, how many people are going to risk entering into contracts? Either he's going to be killed, which means the, the commercial regime goes down the tubes, right? The merchant, he's dead. If you're held to the law that strictly, that's the cost of it. If he's let off, the commercial regime goes. Because who's going to risk anymore? Does everybody see the problem? Here's the problem at the center of this Venetian world. It's a contractual world. People enter into contracts on trust that they'll be enforced. So Shakespeare's looking at the ultimate ground of our own regime, the real cost of it. 
Okay? If, it's, if Chadwick gets his way and Tony's going to be executed, he's dead. If he's dead, the commercial regime goes down. If he's let off, the commercial regime goes down. So how do you reconcile those two extremes? You have to read to find out. <laughs> and it's going to be interesting. This is real. No lawyer from Venice steps up. Why? Because all lawyers are products of this Venetian world. The person who comes in to answer this court case is going to be a woman from Belmont. Not a lawyer. What is Shakespeare telling us about justice and mercy and the nature of the commercial regime? The regime we live in. That's our homework. Very good. Okay? Yeah. Very good. I hope Thank to you. see you all again. Thank you. See you next week.